The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a look at healthcare stocks. My guest is Barron's healthcare reporter, Josh Nathan Cases. He's been covering industry earnings, pharma acquisitions, and the theme of the year, weight loss treatments. He'll bring us up to speed on everything investors need to know. Welcome to Barron's Live, Josh. I am so glad you could join today's call. Hi, Lauren. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. So let's start with the weight loss news. Remember Lily's Munjaro, the diabetes drug? I'm sure you do. The company just won FDA approval to sell it as a weight loss treatment under the name ZepBound. This is big news, and I am wondering, Josh, when will ZepBound be on the market, and what does the approval mean for Lilly and its shares, which look like they're down about 3.5% today? Yeah, so this you know was anticipated, but it's still big news, I think. Uh, there was no doubt that the FDA was going to approve this drug for um, obesity. One of the questions is whether it would be sold under, under the same name, under the name Manjaro, or get its own brand name. It got its own brand name, uh, ZepBound, uh, for whatever that's we <laughs> um, they say that it should be in pharmacies a little bit after Thanksgiving. So, so pretty soon, uh, you know, I think the questions here are about, um, you know, which insurers will pay, how long will it take for insurers to start paying and employers to opt into paying for this? Um, and, and also on pricing. So, so Lily did make a bit of a sort of a, a poke at Novo, Novo Nordisk here, which sells Wagovi, which is sort of the, the competitor to this drug. They set their list price at um, about 20% below Wagovi's list price. Um, you know, the, how, how material that ends up being is an open question. The way Lily talked about it is they said, you know, we, we often think about uh, drug pricing in terms of PBMs, right? These pharmacy benefit managers, these big entities that sit in between um, the insurers and the drug companies. And the pharmacy benefit, the, the PBMs like high prices because they can get bigger rebates from the drug companies on higher priced drugs. Um, but but Lilly actually went for a lower price here, and they said they were trying to appeal to the employers who also have to say yes on these obesity drugs. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the employers may not actually see the net prices negotiated by the PBMs on their behalf, but they do see the list prices. So they thought that lower list price would make it more attractive. Who knows if that's going to work? Um, do you think it would spark a price for it with Wagovi then coming down in price? Yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see. I mean, right now, right now it's really about supply, right? Mm -hmm. There's there's not going to be an. It's not as though, um, it's not as though uh, at this point I don't think like a doctor is going to say, well, you should do you know one or the other based on price, right? It's really going to be about what your insurance covers and also what you can actually get. You know, the supply will be constrained here. Um, is you know, there a, is there a notable difference between the two products? Uh, well, the trial i'm not sure that there have been head-to-head -head trials i think the the raw numbers look better for the lily drug um but uh um you know i'm sure there's lots of complexities there 
Okay. So does the drop in Lily's price today have anything to do with this, or is this just market-related? Yeah, I'm not sure what's going on there. Lily's shares were up yesterday on this news. Okay. Um, it may be that they sort of rose a bit, and now people are thinking about the complexities of pricing, but I think we can only speculate. And and a number of pharma drugs are down today. Yeah. So Lilly and Novo Nordisk are the big players in obesity treatments, but Pfizer also wants to enter this extremely lucrative market. Pfizer is testing a pill, and if it performs well, you've argued that would be good news for the stock. So what are the pros and cons of Pfizer's entry, and when when will we know more? Yeah, so the context here is that Pfizer shares are down about you know, something like 40% this year. They're trading near a 52-week low. Investors are really sort of stuck on the decimation of sales of in its COVID franchise. Um, this patent cliff that's been an issue for a number of years, it's still on its way. Um, and, you know, one of the things that uh, we've learned this year is that there's nothing that gets investors exciting, excited these days uh, nearly as much as obesity drug news. And Maybe so parents would launch one. <laughs> so <laughs> Pfizer has an obesity drug has obesity drug news coming before the end of the year on this oral oral treatment called Danagliparon. Now, investors have not liked Danagliparon have not been been particularly psyched about Danagliparon. It is twice daily pill, whereas pills currently in development from uh, you know Lilly, from Novo, from Structure Therapeutics are all once daily. So that seemed like a big. Um, seem like it, it's, it's had a big disadvantage. Um, but th that said, you know, if it works, it would be a big deal. I think the benchmark here is about 15% weight loss and, you know, um, reasonably good safety uh, outcomes. Um, uh, you know, the, the, other, the other thing that, that Pfizer has said is that they're working on making this once a day uh, and they'll know early next year if they've sort of figured out how to make it a once a day pill, in which case in the phase three trial that they're going to run next year, they'll actually use the once a day version. So, you know, there's a, there's a story here about how Pfizer could be a real competitor in the weight loss landscape. Um, you know, but it really depends on this data from this phase two B trial then a glip which we expect before the end of the year. Do you expect other companies to also enter the business? I mean, there's lots of companies working on weight loss. Um, you know, uh, obviously, Lily Novo, Structure, Pfizer. I think Amgen has something. You could go on and on. This is an enormous market. It's still evolving. Obviously, Lily and Novo have a big, big lead here. But, um, you know, I mean, as we just discussed, Lily just got its weight loss product approved um, after, you know, we've been talking about this for a year now. So um, this is still ramping up. You know, analysts see this as being, you know, the biggest market out there. And uh, I think anybody who, who can get a piece of it is going to try to. That makes sense. So the pharma industry just wrapped up third quarter earnings season. And the results were pretty good, but the stocks reacted terribly. I want to look at the earnings first, Josh, and then we'll take a look at the, the market performance of the group. Since we're on the subject of Pfizer, we can start with Pfizer's results. They missed analyst estimates. What happened and what does that bode for the company and the stock? Yeah, I mean, you know, Pfizer wants the story to be about its new launches, of which it has many, um, and its M&A activity, which has been pretty aggressive. But yeah. everybody, everybody wants to talk about COVID. And they had actually sort of prepared the market for these earnings in mid-October. They put out a 
sort of a uh, financial update, really severely cutting their forecast for COVID-19 products this year from $21.5 billion to $12.5 billion. They announced a $3.5 billion cost savings program. So that was all before earnings. Their, their earnings announced this week, uh, was it last week, slightly missed street estimates. Um, they lost $0.08 cents a share. I think a lot of that had really been telegraphed in, in mid-October. Um, and a lot of a lot of what happened was they they had a uh, five and a half billion dollar non cash um, inventory write off for unused doses of Paxlovid. Paxlovid, this this antiviral, um, has been really sort of a commercial disaster this year, um, and I think that that just you know that's part of the end of pandemic. Are narrative people that, are people no longer taking it when they get COVID? I'm not sure what patient behavior has been, but the U.S. government returned a ton of doses uh, that were unused. So it just the uptake never was what um, maybe uh, people had imagined. And I think that part of that has to do with the severity of the pandemic and part of it has to do with, you know, the behavior of, of people who, who get COVID. Um, uh, you know, executives told us that they think that investors will start to see Pfizer shares as cheap now that the COVID-19 business uncertainties are being cleared away. But that hasn't happened yet. And that sort of goes back to this Danagliparon thing, this uh, this COVID pill. I mean, sorry, this obesity pill. Uh, there are analysts who think that, that that could be what investors need to get excited about the stock again. But um, certainly uh, the stock is down pretty sharply this year. But as you say, Pfizer has made many acquisitions. Over time, it should have many more shots on goal. How are people thinking about the pipeline? Yeah, you know, I mean, they've they've just had a ton of launches. You know, the RSV drug. Um, there, there's been a, there's been a lot. So, uh, I, I just think that the pipeline doesn't get a ton of attention because of the, you know, when you look at the shape of the revenues and the directions it's going, like COVID just had such a big, big impact there. And they're approaching this seventeen billion dollar patent cliff. So, um, there's there's a lot of sort of frightening numbers out there. Got it. Doesn't sound like a pretty picture. Let's move on to Biogen. The company reported earnings yesterday, and its drug partner, Isai, shared some news this week about Lakembi. That is the two companies' joint Alzheimer's treatment. Can you sum up the latest news for us? Yeah. So, you know, Biogen reported earnings yesterday. They did uh, beat expectations, but really all the focus is on when this company can return to growth. I mean, remember their their historic franchises are, um, uh, you know, shrinking, and uh, they 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 put a lot into these sort of high risk, high reward, you know, Alzheimer's and, and other baskets. Um, they had a big disappointment with Agilehelm a couple of years ago, and now we're on to Lakembi, and really all the focus is on Lakembi. Asai said earlier this week that Lakembi sales were about $2 million in the quarter. Uh, that was, I think, maybe a little lower than analysts expected, but really the expectation had been that the ramp will be slow. Um, there's a lot of debate now over this new uh, subcutaneous form of Lakembi, basically, uh, they've got a version that would allow it to be taken at home rather than, you know, going in for an infusion every, I think it's every two weeks or something, um, which is hard for people with, um, you know, Alzheimer's or right. impairment. Um, uh, so they, they did show that that new subcutaneous, you know, at-home version, like, clears the brain plaques that the drug is supposed to clear, but the rates of this sort of form of brain swelling called ARIA that are an issue with this kind of drug were higher than with the version that's currently approved. So I think there's a debate over whether it's going to get approved and and what that'll mean for the, you know, the, the sales of this drug. The other thing that's going on with Biogen, they had a postpartum depression drug called uh, Zerzave that they partnered with Sage with. Um, they had hoped that this would 
get approved in major depressive disorder, but it didn't sound like, like it's going to. Postpartum depression is a much smaller indication. Um, uh, Sage set up basically like $16,000 price tag for a two-week course of this drug, which actually was lower than expected. Um, and uh, so, and, but, but the company said that they're still committed to this partnership, even though, you know, it's not going to be what it would have been if they got that major depressive disorder indication. I don't hear a lot of good news here. Well, we, we, Bijan is, Bijan has been starred for good news for a while. I think, I think um, if you're looking for good news in, in, you know, Bijan, we're waiting to hear what Bijan's sort of return to growth plans are right now. They're sort of in a reset period. That seems to be a theme across the industry. For a number of the companies, yes. Right, which gets me to Moderna. Moderna posted yeah. a big loss for the quarter, and the company is undergoing something of a reset after its tremendous success with an mRNA-based COVID vaccine. How should investors think about the latest developments at Moderna? First, tell us what they are, and then yeah, how so should I, investors think about them? As you say, there was a $3.6 billion net loss for the quarter. A lot of that was like some inventory write-downs. Uh, basically, they're trying to there were a lot of non-cash charges related to cutting back on their COVID vaccine manufacturing program. Um, so basically they're, they're resetting, they're trying to scale back on the very significantly tremendous manufacturing capacity they built for the pandemic era. Um, they, uh, I spoke to the CEO, Stefan Bansell, he said they need to, you know, readapt for the sort of post pandemic era volumes. Um, so they're resizing the company and that led to, you know, big um, on paper losses for this quarter they are now projecting that sales will begin to grow again in 2025 and they're going to break even in 2026. Analysts don't think they're going to have see profitability again until 2027. They have plenty of cash to get there. Um, but, you know, a lot is now riding on the launches of, you know, um, an RSV vaccine that they're working on, a combo vaccine they're working on uh, that would have RSV COVID. Um, one piece of good news is they say they have 45% of the U.S. COVID market this year, and that's up from 36% last year. Um, so but the market was, seems to be smaller. Yes, they have a slightly larger share of a vastly smaller market. <laughs> right. Um, but they are trying to, you know, resize their operations for, for that market uh, to be appropriate. You know, the, the story with Moderna is they spent their COVID money, they're spending their COVID money on a their COVID windfall on their very, very large pipeline. So they've made a big bet on themselves and their technology. And, um, you know, it's just about waiting to see how it plays out. Um, and uh, so the that's the stock, like all the other stocks we've discussed here, uh, is, is down a lot this year, but we'll see. You know, you talked to a lot of drug company CEOs. You mentioned that you talked to Stefan Bansell at Moderna. What's the mood among the industry executives? Well, when we talk, <laughs> everybody's trying to put a, a good face on earth. Right, so everybody does a good job of having a very positive mood. That's their job. <laughs> I suppose. I suppose that's true. But reading between the lines, what do you sense? I mean, look. I, I mean, as we can discuss in a moment, um, investors are not thrilled with pharma right now. You know, I mean, virtually every single company that reported earnings, uh, every single pharma company that reported earnings for the last couple of weeks has fallen regardless of whether those earnings were, I think, you know, on their face, good or bad. Um, well, it's a growth stock market again. There's not a lot of, you know, some of these are biotechs, you know, those sort of are growth stocks, right? I mean, uh, I mean, I guess we're, we're mostly talking about large cap pharma, pharma. We're also talking about um, large cap 
biotech. But anyway, I mean, there's there's a whole suite of whole set of reasons why people are, um, you know, not not psyched about big pharma right now. We talk about you know Medicare drug price negotiations, which seem to be coming. They seem to not be able to stop. Um, talk about FTC opposition to pharma mergers. Uh, you know, the kind of dividend yields that um, you know made these companies. Um, you know, popular defensive plays during in a, in a different sort of interest rate environment, you know, no longer are attractive. In fact, maybe a disincentive. And then there's this whole question of whether, you know, I mean, Eli Lilly and Novo are up tremendously this year on, um, you know, excitement over their, uh, right, specific their, their obesity drugs. And, and it's, it's possible, I think, that people are just putting all of their sort of allocation for pharma stocks in those two stocks. And, you know, once you've kind of filled up on that, you don't have many more room in your healthcare bucket for, for other pharma stocks. So, um, I think there's, there's, there's a number of reasons and, uh, it's really, you know, you can see the effect in the stock prices across the sector with some notable exceptions of, uh, Lilly and, uh, and Novo and a few others. Right. As you say, there, there are a lot of things working against them and they are not the magnificent seven tech stocks, which seem to be driving the market. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very bifurcated kind of market. I wanted to wrap up the earnings discussion, however, with a look at GSK. That's the former GlaxoSmithKline. What was the big news coming out of GSK's third quarter release? Uh, yeah, you know, they're, they, they are one of the two companies alongside Pfizer that has a new RSV vaccine this year. This is a, a pretty common virus that can be pretty serious in older adults and infants. Um, for the first time, there are two uh, or there are older adult RSV vaccines this season. The CDC did not give them like a, a super um, strong endorsement, but uh, sales of GSK's vaccine were 850, 860 million in the quarter, which is well ahead of expectations. Um, and it was also ahead of Pfizer's RSV vaccine, Abrisvo, Abrisvo, which was 375 million in the quarter. So um, Glaxo said expects, expects, our XV sales to fall off in Q4 because the retailers kind of bought their doses earlier in the season. But, um, you know, they beat expectations and raised guidance. Um, I spoke to the CEO, Emma Walmsley, who said that, um, you know, they, they, they want to expand their approval for a RexV to include slightly younger adults. So I think it's like 50 and up, 55 and up, but they currently only have approval for 60 million, 60 and up. But they say, you know, they vaccinated uh, one and a half million Americans and there's 83 million Americans over the age of 60. So um, they see a lot of room to grow this. Um, I, there are other questions about how how often you'll need to take this. It's probably not every year, um, but it may not be maybe more frequently than like every decade. So that that is another question about the future of these. Uh, mm -hmm. these shows. A lot of a lot of hope writing on vaccines there. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, GSK in particular, you know, it has had a commercial, major commercial success with Shingrix. So they're trying to kind of replicate that here. Makes sense. All right. I want to talk now about the trend that we've seen in the drug industry for a number of years. A lot of big Trump drug companies have been spinning off their consumer health divisions. Johnson & Johnson did it. Pfizer did it. GSK did it. Now Sanofi is joining the party. Why have drug companies favored this sort of split? And what's behind the Sanofi decision? Yeah, we did a feature on this, um, big feature on this a couple of years ago. You know, I mean, historically, in order to sort of, you know, flatten out the peaks and troughs that come with, you know, they're sort of inherent to drug development. A lot of these pharma companies 
grew into major conglomerates. You know, you, you had pharma companies owning everything from, um, you, you know, you know, um, nutritional stuff. They owned, um, you know, eye care stuff, animal health. Uh, there was a time when one of them even owned a movie studio. I mean, they, they were real big <laughs> conglomerates and they, they shed those and they shed those. And now we're kind of at the end of a long process of shedding such that, you know, we've seen Pfizer and GSK get rid of their consumer health divisions. Um, that's not now Halion. Johnson & Johnson got rid of their consumer health division. That's called Kenview. And basically, um, virtually all of the big pharma companies, which were, you know, five years ago, con conglomerates, um, are now pure play biopharmas. So Sanofi did the same thing. Um, they're earning, they're, <laughs> they reported earnings as they reported this plan. Uh, and their stock dropped 19%, which was like the biggest single day move in that stock in a very long time. Um, it seems to me that investors were responding not to the separation decision, but rather to a guidance cut for 2024 that they announced as sort of part of this broader plan, which involves like investing more heavily in R&D. Um, so I'm a little bit surprised by the, <laughs> by the right, enormity right. of that sell-off. Um, but I think it's this sort of interesting trend, you know, when, when we've spoken to executives about why they do this, they say, among other things, that biopharma is so complicated now, um, you need the focus of the executive team, uh, you need um, the kind of capital, uh, you need to not be distracted. And so, and, and investors want this. I mean, investors often are a complaint that, um, you know, when you have these sort of um, healthcare conglomerates, the consumer health parts or various other parts aren't getting credit, you know, and if you separate, um, you get more value. And so they've basically all done this. I mean, there are exceptions, right? I think, you know, Merck still has the animal health division. Johnson Johnson still has a medical device division, but those are at this point, the exceptions rather than the rules. But it does expose the pharma side of the business once, once the, defensive parts of the business maybe no doubt i mean it makes and well, what i argued in my future i guess it was probably a year ago now um Ooh. was that these um it makes these essentially like very big biotechs right and right i was like, thinking they're like biotechs depending yeah, on we used to sort of, outs and and drug approvals yeah you know like johnson and johnson and pfizer like you know sort of historically like typical blue chip stocks you know the kind of thing that like you buy and hold for three decades and I, I think that this makes them riskier and more exposed to the vagaries and challenges of um, drug development and and you sort of lose some of that steadiness um, so more risk but also potentially more reward um, and we'll sort of have to see how it plays out over the next many years and you know we should say like these things always operate on a spectrum and people, you know, the trend moves all the way in one direction and then all the way in the other. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, maybe, maybe they'll start to diversify again. Um, maybe they won't. You know, based on the evidence, investors might like the concept of a spinoff, but it hasn't really helped the spinner, namely the big drug company. Well, certainly in Sanofi's case. Right, right. Uh, so yeah. it's an interesting trend. You know, businesses go through phases and trends and fashions. And as you say, uh, sometimes things are reversed. We'll watch it. Let's move on to Sarepta Therapeutics. The stock was just cut in half this year. And the company recently got some disappointing news about 
it's gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. What is going wrong at Sarepta and could anything go right? Yeah, so Sarepta got, uh, in June, got accelerated approval for a gene therapy for this really terrible condition called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, at that point, they didn't have uh, results of a particular phase three trial. Um, that trial produced results uh, on the 30th of October. And unfortunately, in the main measure that the that this trial was 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 using, it didn't show a statistically significant improvement over placebo. Um, you know, uh, there were secondary measures that were better, but you know, you can come away from looking at data and saying the drug like may not work. Um, so the FDA had said when it approved the drug that it could pr pull the approval if the results weren't positive. Um, now, Sarepta had been hoping to expand the approval to include older patients. Right now, it's only approved for children ages four and five. They wanted it for um, significantly older patients than that, um, you know, up to like maybe 13 even. Um, now, Sarepta, on the day that they announced this, their commentary was very optimistic. They said their understanding was that the FDA was still open to expanding the label. But I think there are big questions here about what's going to happen. You know, the FDA historically has been quite flexible on this particular condition because it's so serious. Yes. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, you, you know, you don't want to leave people with, with nothing. Um, on the other hand, I don't think we know um, uh, what is what the agency is going to do. And, and that's why the stock fell so sharply. All right, we'll close with a look at Vertex, then we'll go on to some listener questions. Vertex Pharmaceuticals has a new pain pill. As you argued in Barron's recently, this could actually be good news for the stock. Tell us what's special about this pill and why people are optimistic about its impact on Vertex. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the, it's sort of amazing, but doctors still prescribe a, a lot of opioids, even though you know, we're in the midst of this opioid crisis. I mean, for certain types of pain, there's just not a lot of alternatives. And, um, you know, if there were an, a, a pain pill that wasn't an opioid that didn't have some of the many of the, you know, safety risks, addictive risks that opioids have, it would be in extraordinary demand, right? Um, there have been many failures over the years as companies have tried to make these um, non-opioid pain pills, um, safety issues, effectiveness issues. It's just a very challenging area. Um, Vertex has one that's shown promising but controversial early data, and we'll have more conclusive late stage data before the end of the year. The outlook is uncertain. I think the science here is developing, and we don't know how good this drug is going to be. But you know, analysts say that the stock right now is not getting a lot of credit for this program, and could climb pretty significantly if the trial results are positive. You know, Vertex has um, sort of uh, transformed. Um, the treatment of cystic fibrosis, um, uh, and uh, but it's sort of looking for its next big thing. And if, if this works, it really could be could be it. All right, I have to tell you, Josh. After this entire conversation, the contrarian in me makes me think maybe drug stocks are a good buy at this point. Yeah, well, I mean, there's certainly a case to be made there that they've, you know, been been so beaten down that maybe there's some opportunity. Right, maybe the next move is up, but. We love your coverage, and I thank you for this rundown of the industry. Let's get to some listener questions. Carol had a question about the side effects associated with weight loss drugs and whether they might have a significant impact on the stocks of the companies making these drugs. Maybe in a broader sense, you can tell us about some of the side effects and how people are thinking about them. Yeah, I think it's pretty well known that 
there are, you know, I mean, I think the big question here is whether the, 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 the most, the main question here is whether the, the very widely discussed side effects of like, you know, gastrointestinal distress and, and these sort of things will keep people from staying on the drug um, as it, as it gets more and more widely used. There are more serious side effects that have been raised that Carol's referring to. I don't really know how to predict like how significant those will be or, or won't be. Um, and I think it's just a matter of seeing, you know, what happens as, as usage of these drugs expands, I guess. Mm -hmm. But, but they are not without side effects. No, no. I mean, I, uh, no, these drugs do, do have, um, some, uh, side effects. Okay. We had a question from Michael. Can you talk about the outlook for oral GLP-1 drugs and when can we expect one and what might get approved first? We mentioned Pfizer earlier. Um, who else is working on them and what, what's the outlook for an oral? For an there oral is a, there, there is an approved one from Novo called, uh, Rebelsis. Novo's, Novo's tasting, uh, testing a higher dose version as well that would um, maybe be more effective. Um, you know, Lily has one called uh, Orphagliperon that they're testing. There's the Pfizer one we discussed called Danagliperon. Um, structure one is being tested in an earlier stage. I don't, off the top of my head, you know, sort of know the timeline, um, but uh, I, I do, you know, it's worth noting that Novo does have one that's on the market already. Well, how is that one selling? Uh, that's a great question. I'm not sure. It's it's not as effective as, as some of these injectables. I mean, the question is that, uh, you know, will will doctors want to switch to these pills? Will they be good enough? Um, and what will sort of their role be in the, so, you know, continuum of care as people, you know, get put on the injectables? At some point, do they get switched to the orals? I don't think they really, really know yet. I think that's developing. We're kind of balancing ease of use with effectiveness. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a tough equation. Mark wants to know why medical device stocks are not performing so well and what the outlook is. Yeah, a lot of that has to do with um, these GLP ones, right? I mean, there's been some concern that um, weight loss would mean um, that, that that sorry that a sort of a, a less obese population would lead to lower demand for some of the surgeries that medical device stocks or your procedures that medical devices made by these medical device companies are used for. Um, you know, there's other arguments that it would increase other surgeries that people who are overweight are not eligible for. So this is a matter of debate, um, but but it has been, it has had an impact on a lot of those stocks. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence or anecdotal talk about the impact on other surgeries, but it, I don't think anything's been actually charted yet or, or you know, defined. Yeah. And I think the companies themselves have a lot of arguments for why they, they won't be, they won't see ahead. I think as somebody on our healthcare roundtable, which ran in early October said, on the one hand, people are not going to need surgeries if they are losing weight, other certain surgeries. On the other hand, losing weight is making people healthier and they're playing pickleball and that's good for surgeries. Right. Right. Exactly. I remember that discussion. So yeah. It's quite a quite a mix up. Um, finally, we have a question from Rita. Do you have any thoughts on gene editing companies? Uh, I don't have anything off that. Okay. There was there was an uh, an important advisory committee meeting at FDA last week about this, so people um, curious should look for coverage of that. Okay, we will we will take a look in the future at that, perhaps. Josh, I want to thank you today for sharing your insights with us. 
And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in and thanks for your questions. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, Leslie Hendrickson of Mansion Global will speak with real estate experts on what's in store for real estate in 2024 and which luxury markets are booming. They'll be looking at the emerging housing market index from the Wall Street Journal and Realtor.com. Thanks again, everybody, for joining today's call. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.